This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello once more and thank you for joining us. We're talking about the most difficult subject to fully realize in Buddhism, the nature of reality. It's said that realizing bodhicitta fully is more difficult, but less tricky, in the sense that while you can't go off the rails developing bodhicitta, you can go quite seriously wrong meditating on the nature of reality. Now for the rest of the program, I'm going to refer to the nature of reality as emptiness. Those of you who were with us last week will know what I'm talking about. For those who were not with us last week, emptiness in Buddhism refers to the way that things lack inherent independent existence. They are empty of such an inherent independent existence. They only exist depending on their causes, conditions and parts, as well as the mind that labels them. Of course, a table would not be a table if we didn't all agree that the flat thing with four legs is for putting dinner on and is called a table. If we all agree that it was actually a thing for playing marbles on called a goon flicker, it would not appear as a table at all, and mothers would scold their children for putting their dinner on it. And apart from the mind that calls it a table, how did the table come about? through a whole lot, lot of causes and conditions coming together, part of which were the people putting all the bits that make its parts together. So the thing we call a table depends on its causes, conditions, parts, and the label we give it. Now if we look at the way our mind naturally grasps at the table, we will see that that's not how we see it. We see the table as if it really exists as a table, not depending on anything at all as though it has a table quality all its own. It appears to be quite distinct from everything else, and if I asked you what the ta table depended on, you might well look at me as though I was a bit strange in the head. Of course, you might point out that it depends on the floor or the earth to stand upright, but even if it was floating in outer space, it would still appear to us to be an independent and inherently existing table. The way that the table actually exists and the way that our mind grasps at its existence are in conflict. Now this wouldn't particularly matter if it didn't involve emotions and karmic imprints and our future lives. If this anomaly brought us ongoing irreversible happiness and peace, we would have no need of a Buddha. In fact, the Buddha would not have cut off his hair and disappeared into the forest for six years. He only did it to find long-term freedom from suffering after all. Unfortunately, the way we perceive our world and ourselves doesn't bring long-term peace. It brings exactly the opposite. The very cause of all our misery, the Buddha found, was the skew way that we look at existence. If we didn't have this view, but saw reality as it really exists, we would have no misery at all, not even the slightest. So the whole thrust of the Buddha's teachings is to unravel our innate mistaken grasping at, at existence and to see it clearly. And that, in my honor terms, is to realize emptiness or selflessness. 
To say things do not have an inherent independent existence is to say they do not have a self-nature. Normally we talk about only people having a self, but in the Buddhist terminology we also talk about the self-grasping at phenomena, and this is something we also covered last week. When we talk about the self of phenomena, we don't mean that dead things have a kind of self that asserts itself as me, like the table sitting up and saying, I'm a table and take your dirty shoes off me. But it is as if to our mind the table has a unique table quality that if it was alive, the table could claim. That is what is meant roughly by the self-grasping of the table. Not that the table grasps at I, but that our mind grasps at the table as if it had a table kind of I. The problem with this sort of grasping is that it is the foundation for our emotional entanglements. Say I buy the table and take it home. Let's say this time it's a coffee table, not something you do homework or sewing on, though I guess you could use a coffee table as a kind of uncomfortable sewing platform. Now because I see this coffee table as inherently existing and independent, and I see myself in the same way, I develop an attitude to it. Seeing I bought it, we can, I think, safely say I like it. Perhaps I like it a lot. So I have a lot of attachment for it, and if I could, I would take it to bed with me at night. Now my farmer friend, who is a bit of a rough diamond, comes along to visit me and, relaxing, puts his size 12 feet in muddy boots up on the table. How do you think I would feel? Pretty mad, right? I might get very upset. However, if I was in your house where there is exactly the same table and he did exactly the same thing, would I get as angry? I doubt it. I may be pretty shocked, but not very upset. What is the difference? The tables are the same. The farmer bloke is the same. Why don't I get into a rage about him putting his feet on your table, but I become furious when he does the same to mine? Based on the concept that there's a real table and a real me, I grasp that the table is mine. It becomes a part of me, and so I feel that I must protect it, in the same way as I must protect my skin. The difference, you see, is in my mind, the way I grasp at the table and the farmer. In terms of the table, it has no attitude to whether the boots are on it or on the ground. The table plainly couldn't care. I'm the one that's doing the caring. Now, if I saw the table as just a collection of causes, conditions and parts, and the label that the mind puts on them, would I get so upset? If all the table to me was the history of the Big Bang creating elements which combined to create trees and other things, which died and became other things, which also died and became other things and so on for a long, long time, until eventually there became the tree from which my table came, then that tree was chopped down by some men, carved up some by some other men, the wood shaped by some more men, put together by more men, and then put into a shop where I bought it. If I saw it as that and not as a real table, would I get so upset? If instead of a solidly existing thing that was the same from day to day, I saw just a process of eternal change and not much else, would I get upset? For that is all it really is. It is impermanence in play masquerading as a table. The independent table is just an illusion, a masquerade. If I could see all the quantum processes going on, the table would seem quite, quite liquid and I would have nothing to grasp at as a table. 
The farmer's size 12s would appear the same, and so the one meeting the other would be no more than red smoke meeting blue smoke. The appearing nature would be different, but the actual nature hardly different at all. Then I would have no attachment and no anger. Nor would I have pride, for I would appear in the same way. And how can you be proud if you are continually appearing as a mere selfless continuum, just like everyone and everything else? Pride only comes with an idea of a certain way of existing as a self. And if you don't have that, how can you have pride? Okay, so this has been a bit of a rant, and I hope you haven't got a headache by it all. I'm just trying to help our understanding of what we mean by emptiness. It's not nothingness. It's not some kind of great void where nothing at all exists. That is not the Buddhist idea at all. In fact, that is quite anti-ethical to the Buddhist belief of reality. Emptiness means being completely free of existing in a certain way, being empty of that way of existing. In the same way as it means a clean cup is empty of coffee, because no coffee can be found anywhere at all in the cup. Buddhist emptiness means empty of existing as an inherent, independent thing, because nothing exists inherently and not depending on something else. Nothing has its own defining characteristic that does not depend on something else. Emptiness does not mean something does not exist at all. To say the table is empty is not to say the table does not exist. It is to say that the table does not exist in a certain way, the way that our mind instinctively grasps at it. It still exists, and if you ask how it exists, it is only through causes, conditions, parts, and the mind that labels it. It has no other existence than that. You can see that this is very subtle and quite difficult to grasp. That is why it's left to the end of all the other practices. As we heard last time from Geshe Lodin in his book The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, through eons and eons of conditioning, the mind has become rigid with belief in the mistaken view. To make it flexible enough to change to the correct understanding takes a lot of work. Like if you want to make a very stiff hide supple. You have to spend weeks massaging and processing it until you're able to make it good enough for a leather jacket, for instance. The mind takes much more work than that. In Buddhism, it is said that the Buddha took three countless eons to get from the ordinary mind to the enlightened mind. Some people say it was even longer than that. Therefore, we have to do many exercises to make our mind serviceable before we can come anywhere close to realizing emptiness fully. Our self-grasping is very strong, and also very tricky. The self appearing inherently existing and independent that we are combating does not want to be proven non-existent. It fights in any way it can to prevent our realizing its true nature, employing all sorts of tricks and subterfuges. So it's not an easy task to get rid of the self-grasping, and that is why we go through all the meditation topics like impermanence, karma, suffering and so on we've examined in this series of programs. Geshe Lodin puts it like this, The practices of the path to enlightenment from devotion to the teacher to the fifth perfection concentration are likened to the body which holds the eye of wisdom. Just as you could not find your way with good legs and arms but no sight, 
So the city of enlightenment will only be found by wisdom realizing emptiness, supported by the practices of the other stages of the path. Without wisdom, you are like a blind man and will not find enlightenment. Anyway, now before we go any further, let's not forget to set our motivation. This is very important, for if we don't have a correct motivation, we might just be strengthening our self-grasping and so our suffering instead of counteracting it. The best motivation is the one that thinks least of self and most of others. This undermines our usual way of looking at things in which we think most of ourselves and secondly, thirdly, fourthly and lastly of others. This other-based motivation undermines that very self-grasping that we've just been talking about and helps to steer us on the path to enlightenment. Those who have been with us in previous programs will know that we usually try to set a bodhicitta motivation to attain enlightenment so that we can be the greatest benefit to all beings. This is undoubtedly the best motivation to develop to finally destroy what one Buddhist master calls the demon of selfishness. So let's take a little time to set this motivation now and in the process take one more step on the narrow path to full enlightenment. Thank you. Now last time I started using Geshe Loden's book to explain ultimate wisdom or emptiness more precisely. I must admit that while I have a small intellectual understanding of this, I'm very ignorant of its subtleties and on my own could go quite wrong. So I'm going to use Geshe Loden's manual to explain. Geshe Loden is a great Buddhist master actually based in Australia. His book is a very easy to understand manual written for Western minds. So that is why I'm using it instead of some of the more intricate Buddhist texts written by other masters. Last time we talked about the self-grasping ignorance in terms of two, the self-grasping of persons and the self-grasping of phenomena. Not that the self-graspings are two different things, they're not, but it makes things much easier to work with in meditation to look at it in this way. When we talk about emptiness, we approach it in the same way. We talk about the emptiness of persons and the emptiness of phenomena. If you ask how is the one emptiness different from the other, I will say that the emptiness itself is no different. Emptiness just means lack of inherent, independent, permanent, substantial existence. Whether we are talking about the emptiness of our pet dog or the emptiness of the Titanic, it is the same emptiness. However, the base is different. The dog, which is a the base of its emptiness is not the same as the ship, the Titanic, the base of the emptiness of the Titanic. Similarly, when we talk about the emptiness of persons, we mean the lack of inherent independent existence of persons. And when we talk about the emptiness of phenomena, we are talking about the lack of inherent independent existence of things like the five aggregates or the Titanic. Pet dogs, incidentally, are persons, because a person is defined as a being with mind. So even a cockroach is a person according to this definition. Geshe Loden says that the way we tie ourselves into cyclic existence is by first seeing phenomena as having inherent independent existence and then seeing ourselves the person as having such an existence. It is better, however, that when we meditate on this subject that we first meditate on the emptiness of persons rather than phenomena as it's easier to recognize the emptiness of persons than it is to recognize the emptiness of phenomena. 
I'm not quite sure why that is. Sometimes it seems to me it would be easier to recognize that an object like a car I can take apart has no inherent existence than recognize that I myself have no such existence. However, be that as it may, in general we meditate on the emptiness of persons before that of phenomena. Now I just want to read something from Geshe Loden's book that reinforces what I said a little earlier in the program about emptiness not meaning non-existence. This is an extremely important point, because if on thinking about emptiness we come to the conclusion that things do not exist at all, we will be committing a very grave error. Much more grave than if we continue in the idea that things and persons have their own inherent existence. We are told again and again in class that if we come to the conclusion that things don't exist, it is much harder to change to the right conclusion than if we believe things have their own inherent existence and change from there. So Geshe Loden stresses, The emptiness of the person does not mean that there is no person. It means that the person is empty of a particular mode of existence, inherent existence. The person being empty of inherent existence does not mean that it is non-existent, that there is no person at all. Rather, the person is empty of inherent existence, substantial existence, independent existence, objective existence, or self-sustaining existence. If you search among all the aspects and parts of a person, you will not be able to locate an inherently existent person. Such a person is unfindable, and persons are empty of that mode of existence. What then is the actual mode of existence of a person? A person exists independence on its parts, the five aggregates, eighteen constituents, and so on, independence on causes and conditions, and independence on a label or imputation. Depending on these, a person exists conventionally, but is not in any one part, cause, condition, or label, nor can the person be found separate from them. So this is what we were discussing earlier on in the program. Geshe Loden goes on to say that the usual innate, non-analytical way we grasp at things and people means that we see them as inherently, truly, and independently existing and act accordingly. And he uses the example of a monk. This is what he says. For example, we see someone in robes and think monk. Innately, we hold the monk as something self-existing. We think of him as identifiably, truly, inherently, independently, and substantially existent. This is a totally mistaken view. There is no such monk. What we see is due to ignorance grasping at the self-existence of the person. We miss the fact that the monk depends on the application of the label monk. He is dependent on five aggregates, 253 vows, and so on. If we were to analyze, to try to pinpoint exactly what is the monk, we would conclude that the distinctive robes are not the monk, the vows are not the monk, the body is not the monk, the collection of the five aggregates is not the monk, and not one of the eighteen constituents is the monk. The further we look, the more elusive is the monk. By exhausting all such possibilities, we are left to conclude that an inherently existent monk is unfindable. That unfindability or emptiness of an inherently existing monk is the emptiness of person. 
The only way to apprehend the emptiness of person is to engage in analysis, to endeavor to find an inherently existing person. When you realize the emptiness of the person, persons will, without any further need of analysis, appear to your mind as dependent arisings which are empty of inherent existence. Now, did you get all that? What he is saying is that when we look at a monk, we think we are seeing a real independent monk. But if we examine this view, which is quite innate, not something based on philosophy or thinking, we will see that it's wrong. Where is the monk? Is it the robes? Obviously not. If the robes were the monk, then absurdly when the robes were hanging in a cupboard, a monk would be in the cupboard. Is the monk the vows? No, for again, if the vows were found in a book, a monk would also be in the book, which is nonsense. Is the monk the body of the man? Well, if that were the case, the man would have been a monk before he became ordained. And so we can continue to analyze what appears before us as a monk, trying to find where the actual independent, inherently existing monk is. Is he the five aggregates? Form, feeling, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness. Again, no, for then there would be five monks as each aggregate is different from the others. We can continue to analyze until we come to the minutest particles or psychic movements and we will not find an independent, inherently existing monk anywhere. That tells us that such a monk does not exist at all. How does the monk exist? He exists depending on all the causes that made him a man and then a monk all the parts that are holding together to give him the semblance of a monk, all the conditions that came together to allow him to be a monk, and the mind that labels monk. That collection of things, which are all interdependent and not independent bits in a basket, is how the monk exists, but not how we see the monk. We see him as if he is truly and objectively a monk, and so to rel relate to him like that. His lack of existing in that way is his emptiness. Now Geshe Loden goes on, If we investigate and endeavor to find an inherently existing person or inherently existing phenomena for that matter, no such thing can be found. Self and phenomena are empty of inherent existence. This, however, does not suggest that self and phenomena are non-existent. They exist by way of convention or label, but not inherently. They exist and function as mere dependent arisings that lack substantial, solid, inherent existence. Persons and phenomena exist as mere imputations on parts, causes and conditions. Karma actually functions conventionally, but not inherently. Persons do exist conventionally, but not in the way that they are innately conceived to exist, that is, inherently. To think that the emptiness of self and phenomena means the non-existence of self and phenomena is to fall to an extreme of nihilism. The opposite extreme is to assume that if they exist at all, they must exist inherently and truly by their own power, independent of parts, causes, conditions and label. Both these extremes are overcome by the correct view of emptiness or the middle way between the two extremes as set out by Nagarjuna. So the two extremes are to think that things have no existence at all, they do not actually exist in any way, and to think that things have their own inherent independent existence. Now taking our table again as an example, the view of the nihilist is that the table does not exist at all, 
It is empty of all existence. Now, if this were so, then when you walked into it, you shouldn't feel any pain, because the table is not really not there. The opposite view is that the table has its own independent existence, not depending on anything else. It has a real table quality. These are extremes on either side of the middle way view, which states that although things function quite well, they do not function as independent entities. They function as dependent arisings. In other words, depending on other things, which in turn depend on other things, and those depend on other things and so on. If you took away their dependence on other things, like causes, conditions, parts and the label, they would not exist at all. Keshi Loden says a very good example is watching TV. We may see a beautiful person in a movie and experience desire. A vampire story may cause us to experience fear and have bad nightmares. A thriller may cause us some tension. A handsome hero dying of an incurable disease can leave us reaching for the tissues. We experience this range of emotions because we mistake dots of light on a blank screen for real people and events. Here is really no vampire, no beauty and no hero. So what are we crying about? What are we afraid of? In the same way, we mistake the mere collection of causes, conditions, parts and labels as really existing people and things. When we lust after someone attractive on a TV screen, it is, as Geshe Loden says, lusting after a collection of dots on a blank screen. If we really think about it, we know that what we're seeing on the box is just fantasy. We know in our intellectual knowledge that it is all fantasy. You might say, but on the other end of the line to my TV set are real people and real happenings represented by the dots of light. But even that is not true. I used to be an actor and once or twice appeared on Shortland Street. If I remember correctly, we shot my scenes weeks before they appeared in anyone's living room. So by the time people were watching me, I was long gone, doing something completely different, as it is with most movies. All we are reacting to is a light on a screen and a picture it conjures in our head. We react as if it's all completely real, but none of it is, not even the least of it. But what we call reality is exactly the same. Anybody who saw me on Shortland Street could quite easily, on thinking about it, realize that it was not the real me appearing on the TV screen. I wasn't even in the box behind the screen. It was just lights. But if they met me in person, they would believe that I was a real, inherently existing person. But I exist very much in the same way as my appearance on the TV screen. As the image on the screen was just made up of lights and the causes and conditions that made it possible for the lights to be arranged in a way that simulated me, I am made up of parts, causes and conditions that simulate me. Remember I talked about the endless process of change we really are. So as the light moves on the TV screen, in real life I am made to move by a complex interplay of forces and not because of a single intention from an independent person. When we see someone attractive, we don't stop to think this is just a collection, like the shapes on a movie screen are just lights I interpret into shapes. We see them as existing inherently, and from that we develop lust for them. That lust is the totally mistaken result of seeing that person as an inherent independent being. If we could see them as never-ending changing set of dependencies, we would never de develop that lust. 
it would be like developing lust for smoke. Our exaggerated view of things and people cause us to develop these emotions which lead us to create actions which place imprints and tendencies on our minds that causes the habits that we wander on with and so experience suffering. Now time is up and we must go. Once again, thank you for being with us today and please join us again next week. I wish you every happiness for the coming week. But for now, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.